Chapter 17, Parts 1 through 3 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 17 The Conquest of Persia, Parts 1 through 3. Section 1. Alexander's First Descent on Greece On his accession to the throne of Macedon, Alexander found himself menaced by enemies on all sides. The members of the Confederacy of Corinth, the tributary peoples of the province of Thrace, the inveterately hostile Illyrians, all saw in the death of Philip an opportunity not to be missed for undoing his work. And in Asia, Attalus, the father of Cleopatra, Expoused the claim of Cleopatra's infant son. Thus Alexander stood within a belt of dangers, like that by which his father, at the same crisis in his life, had been encompassed. The difference of the means which sire and son adopted to deal with the jeopardy showed the difference in temperament between the two men. If Alexander had followed the slow and sure methods of his father, he would have bought off the barbarians of the north, effected a reconciliation with Attalus, and deferred the Greek question till he had thoroughly established his power in Macedonia. Then, by degrees, he could have recovered in a few years the dominion which Philip had won, and undertaken the expedition against Persia which Philip had planned. But such cautious calculation did not suit the bolder genius of Philip's son. He refused to yield to any of his foes. He encountered the perils one after another, and overcame them all. First of all, he turned to Greece, where the situation looked serious enough. Athens had hailed the news of Philip's death with undisguised joy, and the instance of Demosthenes had passed a decree in honor of his murderer's memory. Trumpets were sounded for war. Messengers were flying to Attalus and to Persia, and Greece was incited to throw off the Macedonian yoke. Ambracia expelled her garrison, and Thebes attempted to expel hers. But the insurrection of Thessaly was of far greater importance than the hostile agitations in the southern states. The Thessalian cavalry was an invaluable adjunct to the Macedonian army, and it was a more material consequence to a Macedonian king to be the archon of the Thessalian federation than to be acknowledged as general of the confederacy of Corinth. Yet it was hardly altogether the need of quickly securing Thessaly that urged Alexander to deal with Greece before he dealt with any other portion of his empire. He wished, above all things, to save Greece from herself. His timely appearance, before the agitation could develop into a fully declared rebellion, might prevent the cities from committing any irreparable action which would necessitate a condign punishment, or even harsh measures. He would march south, not to chastise or judge the Greeks, but to conciliate them and obtain recognition as successor to his father's place in the Amphictyony of Delphi and the League of Corinth. He advanced to the defile of Tempe, but found it strongly held by the Thessalians. Instead of attempting to carry a position which was perhaps impregnable, he led his army further south along the coast, and, cutting steps up the steep side of Asa, he made a new path for himself over the mountain and descended into the plain of the Peneus behind his enemy. Not a drop of blood was shed, 
a Thessalian assembly elected Alexander to the archonship, and he guaranteed to the communities of the land the same rights and privileges which they had enjoyed under his father. The conciliation of Thessaly led to the adhesion of its southern neighbors, Malus and Dolopia. At Thermopylae the young king was recognized by the Amphictyani, and as he marched southward not a hand was raised against him. He had swooped down so quickly that nothing was ready to resist. The Athenians sent a repentant embassy, which the king received kindly without any reference to the public jubilations over his father's murder, and the Congress of the Confederacy met at Corinth to elect Alexander general in his father's place. Alexander was chosen supreme general of the Greeks for the invasion of Asia, and it was as head of Hellas, descendant and successor of Achilles, rather than as Macedonian king, that he desired to go forth against Persia. But his election by the Greek confederacy at Corinth had more of historical fitness than political significance. The contingents which the Greek states furnished as members of the League were small, and the idea of the expedition failed to arouse any national feeling. Yet the welcome, though half-hearted and hypocritical, which was given to Alexander at Corinth, and the vote, however prefunctory, which elected him leader of the Greeks, were the fitting prelude to the expansion of Hellas and the diffusion of Hellenic civilization, which destiny had chosen him to accomplish. He was thus formally recognized as what he, in fullest verity, was, the representative of Greece. Of all those who thronged at Corinth round the royal youth, to observe him with curious gaze, or flatter him with pleasant words, some may have foreseen that he would be a conqueror of many lands, but none could have suspected how his conquests would transform the world, for few realized that the world was waiting to be transformed. Outside the gates of Corinth, according to a famous story, the king found the eccentric philosopher Diogenes sitting in the barrel, which served him as a home, and asked him to name a boon. Stand out of the sun, was the brief reply of the philosopher. Were I not Alexander, said the king to his retinue, I should like to be Diogenes. The incident may never have happened, but the anecdote happily brings face to face the enthusiast who carried individual liberty to the utmost verge of independence, and the enthusiast who dreamed of making his empire conterminous with the globe. For the individualism which Diogenes caricatured was the sister to the spirit of cosmopolitanism which Alexander's empire was to promote. Meanwhile, some domestic dangers had been cleared violently out of his path. His stepmother, her father, and her child had all been done away with. Attalus had been murdered in Asia in accordance with the king's commands. But Alexander was not responsible for the death of Cleopatra and her infant. This was said to be the work of Olympias, who, thirsty for revenge, caused the child to be slaughtered in its mother's lap, and forced Cleopatra to hang herself by her own belt. Section 2. Alexander's Campaigns in Thrace and Illyria There were symptoms of disquietude in Thrace. There were signs of a storm brewing in the Illyrian quarter, and it would have been impossible for the young king to invade Asia, with Thrace ready to revolt in his rear, and Macedonia exposed to attack from the west. It was indispensable to teach the Thracians a lesson, and especially the Tribali, who have never been 
chastised for the check which they had inflicted on Philip. The Trubali lived beyond the Hymus, and when Alexander, having crossed Mount Rodope, reached the foot of one of the western passes of Mount Hymus, he found the steep defile defended by mountaineers. They had hauled up a multitude of their war chariots to the top of the pass, in order to roll them upon the Macedonians, and then, rushing down themselves, to fall upon the disordered army. There was no other way of crossing the mountain, and the mountain must be crossed. Alexander showed, here again, the same temper and the same resource which he had shown at Tempe. When he had made up his mind that an object must be attained, he never hesitated to employ the boldest or most novel means. He ordered the infantry to advance up the path, opening the ranks when possible to let the chariots roll through, but when that was impossible he directed them to fall on their knees, and, holding their shields locked together, to form a roof on which the chariots would fall and roll harmlessly away. The device was successful. The volley of the carts rattled over the locked shields, and, notwithstanding the shock, not a man was killed. When the barbarians had exhausted these ponderous missiles, the pass was easily taken, and the Macedonians descended into the country of the Trebali. At the news of Alexander's approach, the Trebali had sent their wives and children to an island named Peusi in the Danube, and then, waiting until he advanced into their land, stole behind him to seize the mountain passes in his rear. Learning of this movement, Alexander marched rapidly back, forced the enemy to fight, and dispersed them with great loss. He then proceeded on his way to the bank of the Danube. He had foreseen that it might be necessary to operate on that river, perhaps to make a demonstration in the country of the Getai on the northern bank, and he had prepared for this emergency by adopting the same plan as Darius in his famous Thracian expedition. He instructed his ally Byzantium to dispatch ships to sail up the river. The garrison in the island of Peusi was supported by a host of Scythian friends on the left bank of the stream, and Alexander saw that with his few Byzantine galleys it would be hopeless to attack the island until he had secured the Scythian shore. The problem was to throw his troops across the river without the enemy's knowledge, and this must be done in the darkness of one night. The ships were too few in number, but all the fishing boats in the neighborhood were collected, and the tent skins filled with hay were tied firmly together and strung across the stream. Landing on the other bank, led by the king himself, a large band of horse and foot advanced under the cover of the long corn at dawn of day, and the barbarian host arose to see the Macedonian phalanx unfolded before them. Startled as much as by the terrible promptitude of their foe as by the formidable array which faced them, they withdrew into their poorly fortified town, and when Alexander followed them at the head of his cavalry, they fled with all their horses could carry into the wilds of the north. Empire beyond the Danube was not sought by Alexander, and he did not pursue. He marked the term of his northern conquest by sacrificing solemnly on the banks to Zeus, Soter, Heracles, and the river god himself. This exploit led to the surrender of the Trebali in the island, and all the neighboring tribes south of the river hastened to assure the king of their submission. There came also from unknown homes far up the river, or perhaps in the Dalmatian mountains, an embassy of Celts, huge-limbed, self-confident men, who had heard of Alexander's deeds and were fain to be his friends. Curious to know what impression the Macedonian name had made upon that distant folk, 
Alexander asked him what they feared most. We fear nothing, they said. If it be not, let's the sky fall. Braggarts, said Alexander afterwards. But before two generations had passed away, these men of mighty limbs and mighty words were destined to roll down in a torrent upon Greece and Asia, and to wrest for their own habitation a part of Alexander's conquests. Alexander's work was done in Thrace, but as he marched homeward, he learned that the Illyrians were already in the gate of Macedonia, and that not a moment must be lost if the country was to be saved from an invasion. Philip had secured the Macedonian frontier on the Illyrian side by a number of fortresses near the sources of the Haliachman and Apsis, and Pelion, which was the strongest of those strongholds, the key fortress of the mountain gate, had now fallen into the hands of Clytus, the Illyrian chief. To reach Pelion as quickly as possible, before the arrival of the Tolentines, a folk in alliance with Clytus, was the object of Alexander. His march was threatened by the Ariatis, another hostile folk, whom Clytus had engaged to waylay him. But this danger was prevented by the friendly king of the Agrianes, who invaded the Alteriat territory and fully occupied the fighting men. Marching rapidly up the river of the Ariagonus, Alexander encamped near Pelion. The heights around were covered with Illyrians, and Clytus, as was the custom of his people before a battle, sacrificed three boys, three maidens, and three black rams. But before they came to the actual attack, the hearts of the Illyrians failed them, and, deserting all their points of vantage, and leaving their sacrifice incomplete, they retired into the fastness. Alexander intended to blockade the place next day by a circumvallation, but the Tolentines arrived in a large force, and he saw that his men were too few to deal at once with the foes within and the foes without the walls, nor were his provisions sufficient for a protracted siege. It was absolutely necessary to withdraw from his present position, but it was a task of extreme peril to retreat in these defiles, with hostile Pelion in the rear, and Tolentine troops occupying the slopes and heights. This task, however, was carried out successfully, through the amazingly swift and skillful maneuvering of the highly drilled Macedonian soldiers. The enemy were driven from their flanking positions, and the river was crossed with much trouble, yet without the loss of a man. At the other side of the river, Alexander's communications were safe. He could obtain provisions and reinforcements as he chose, and might wait, at his ease, for an opportunity to strike. The moment soon came. The enemy, seeing in Alexander's retreat a confession of fear, neglected all precautions and formed a camp without rampart or outpost before the gates of the fortress. Taking a portion of his army and bidding the rest follow, Alexander set out at night and surprised the slumbering camp of the barbarians. A carnage followed and a wild flight, and the Macedonians pursued to the Taritine Mountains. At the first alarm, Clytus rushed to the gates of Pelion and set the town on fire before he joined the flight. This discomfit of the Illyrians was a no less striking proof of Alexander's capacity than his exploits in Thrace. These months of incessant toil had earned him a rest, but there was to be no rest yet for the young monarch. Even as the tidings of the Illyrian danger had reached him before he left Thrace, so now, while he was still at Pelion, the news came that Thebes had rebelled. He must now speed to Greece as swiftly as seven days agone he had sped to the Illyrian hills. 
no need was more pressing than to crush this revolt before it spread. Section 3. Alexander's Second Descent on Greece The agitation against Macedon had not ceased during the past year in the cities of Greece, and it was now fomented by the gold and the encouragement of Persia. Five years before, at the outbreak of the war, Athens had sent ambassadors to Susa, begging for subsidies from Artaxerxes, but the great king would not break with Philip then, and sent them away with a very haughty and barbarous letter of refusal. The Phrygian satrap, however, perhaps on his own responsibility, sent useful help to Perinthus in its peril, and Persia gradually awoke to the fact that Macedonia was a dangerous neighbor. The new king, Darius, saw the necessity of embarrassing Alexander in Europe, so as to keep him as long as possible from crossing into Asia, where the Macedonian forces under Parmenio were holding their own. For this purpose he stirred up thoughts of war in Greece, and sent subsidies to the Greek states. To many cities these overtures were welcome, but especially to Thebes, under the shadow of the Macedonian garrison. Three hundred talents were offered to Athens, and publicly declined, but Demosthenes privately accepted them, to be expended in the interests of the great king. It is not probable that any city entered into a formal contract with Persia, but the basis of the negotiations was the king's peace of fifty years ago, the Greeks admitting the rights of the Persian Empire over their brethren in Asia, who on their part were awaiting with various feelings the approach of the Macedonian deliverer. As the patriots had often prayed for the death of Philip, so now they longed for the death of his youthful son, an event that might have hurled back Macedon into nothingness forever. Rumors soon spread that the wish was fulfilled. Alexander was reported to have been slain in Thrace. Demosthenes produced a man who had seen him fall, and the Theban fugitives in Athens hastened to return to their native city to incite it to shake off the Macedonian yoke. Two captains of the garrison were caught outside the Cadmia and murdered, and the Thebans then proceeded to blockade the citadel by a double rampart on the south side, where there was no city wall outside the wall of the citadel. Greece responded to the Theban leading, which Demosthenes, Lycurgus, and the other Athenian patriots had prompted and encouraged. There were movements against Macedon in Elis and Aetolia. The Arcadians marched forth to the Isthmus, and the Athenians sent arms to Thebes, though they sent no men. The hopes of the patriots ran high. The fall of the Cadmia seemed inevitable. Suddenly, a report was whispered in Thebes that a Macedonian army was encamped a few miles away at Onchestus. As Alexander was dead, it could only be Antipater. So the Theban leaders assured the alarmed people. But messengers soon came, affirming that it was certainly Alexander. Nay, then, said the leaders, since King Alexander is dead, it can only be Alexander of Lenchestus. But it was indeed the King Alexander. In less than two weeks he had marched from Pelion to Onchestus, and on the next day he stood before the walls of Thebes. He halted first on the northeastern side of the city, near the sanctuary of the Theban hero Iolaus. He would give the citizens time to make their submission, but they were in no mind to submit, and some of their light-armed troops, rushing out of the gates, attacked the outskirts of the Macedonian camp. On the morrow Alexander moved his whole army to the south side of the city, and encamped close to the Cadmia, without making any attack on the walls, still hoping that the city would surrender. But the fate of Thebes was precipitated by one of his captains, by name Perdiccas, 
who was in charge of the troops which guarded the camp on the side of the Cadmia. Stationed within a few yards of the Theban earthworks, Perdiccas, without waiting for orders, dashed through the outer rampart and fell upon the Theban guards. He was supported by a fellow officer, and Alexander, when he observed what had happened, sent archers and light troops to their aid. The Thebans, who manned the rampart, were driven along the gully, which, running along the east side of the Cadmia, passes the temple of Heracles outside the walls. When they reached this temple, they rallied, and turned on their assailants, and routed them back along the hollow road. But as they pursued, their own ranks were broken, and Alexander, watching for the moment, brought his phalanx into action, and drove them within the electron gate. They had no time to shut the gate before some Macedonians pushed in, along with the fugitives, and there were no men on the walls to shoot the enemy down, for the men who should have defended the walls had been sent to the blockade of the citadel. Some of the Macedonians who thus entered made their way to the Cadmia, and, joining with the garrison, they sallied out close to the Amphion, where the main part of the Theban forces were drawn up. Others, having mounted the bastions, helped their friends without to climb the walls, and the troops, thus admitted, rushed to the marketplace. But the gate was now in the possession of the Macedonians. The city was full of them, and the king himself was everywhere. The Theban cavalry was broken up, and fled through the streets and the open gates into the plain. The foot soldiers saved themselves as they could, and then a merciless butchery began. It was not the Macedonians who were zealous in the work of slaughter, but the old enemies of the Thebans, the Phocians, the Plataeans, and other Boeotian peoples, who now wrecked upon the proud city of the Seven Gates vengeance for the wrongs and insults of many generations. Six thousand lives were taken before Alexander stayed the slaughter. On the next day he summoned the confederates of Corinth to decide the fate of the rebellious city. The judges meted out to Thebes the same measure which Thebes would have once meted out to Athens. The sentence was that the city should be leveled with the dust, and her land divided among the confederates, that the remnant of the inhabitants, with the women and children, should be sold into bondage, except the priests and priestesses of the gods, and those burghers who had bonds of guest right with the Macedonians, and that the Cadmian citadel should be occupied by a garrison. The severe doom, showing how deeply the masterful city was aboard, was carried out, and among the ruined habitations, on which the Macedonian warders looked down from the fortress walls, only one solitary house stood, making the desolation seem more desolate, the house of Pindar, whom Alexander expressly spared. The Boeotian cities were at last delivered from the yoke of their impetuous mistress. Plataea and Orchomenos re-arose from their ruins. The fall of Thebes promptly checked all the other movements in Greece. The Arcadian forces withdrew from the Isthmus. Elis and Aetolia hastened to retrieve their hostile attitude. The news reached Athens during the festival of the Mysteries. The solemnity was interrupted, and in a hurried meeting of the assembly it was resolved, on the proposal of Demides, to send an embassy to welcome Alexander on his safe return from his northern campaign, and to congratulate him on the just chastisement which he had inflicted upon Thebes. The same people passed this decree, who, a few days before, on the proposal of Demosthenes, had resolved to send troops to the aid of that luckless city. Alexander demanded, and it was a fair demand, that Demosthenes and Lycurgus, and the other agitators who kept the hostility to Macedonia alive, and were largely responsible for the disaster at Thebes, should be delivered to him. For so long as they were at large, there was no security, 
that Athens would not entangle herself in further follies. When the demand was laid before the assembly, Demosthenes epigrammatically expressed his own view of the situation by advising the people not to hand over the sheepdogs to the wolf. Phocion said in downright words that Alexander must be conciliated at any cost. Let the men who surrender, he demanded, show their patriotism by sacrificing themselves. But it was finally decided that Demides, who had ingratiated himself with the Macedonian king, should accompany another embassy and begged that the offenders might be left to the justice of the Athenian people. Alexander, still anxious to show every consideration to Athens, withdrew his demand, insisting only on the banishment of the adventurer, Charidemus of Thracian notoriety. With the fall of Thebes, Alexander's campaign in Europe came to an end. The rest of his life was spent in Asia. The European campaigns, though they filled little more than a year, and though they seemed of small account by the side of his triumphs in the east, were brilliant and important enough to have won historical fame for any general. In his two descents into Greece, first to conciliate and afterwards to punish, in his expedition to the Danube, and in his Illyrian campaign, he had given tokens of the rare strategic capacity, the originality of conception, the boldness of resolution, the rapidity of action, and those other qualities which served Alexander's genius and soon found a more specious sphere for their manifestation, when they bore him towards the unknown limits of the eastern world. End of chapter 19, parts 1 through 3